Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And we would recall that it was last week in chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, that we looked at a, you ready? This was your biblical theological term that we used last week. We looked at a humdinger of an allegory last week, just to refresh your memories. That allegory was built out of a real historical event told and taught from real people from the Old Testament, but Paul used those real historical events to build an allegory in order to help us understand a deep theological doctrinal truth, that in Christ Jesus, in grace, we have been set free. We are no longer in bondage. We are no longer slaves. Again, we are free set free from the law. Now, today we turn to the next chapter. That wrapped up chapter 4. We turn to chapter 5 today, and what we're going to see immediately as we start into chapter 5 in the very first verse there is we're going to see what some of us would refer to as a bridge, a link, or a connecting thought. And as we see that, we see that in verse 1. Go ahead and look at Galatians 5 verse 1. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, What's interesting about chapter 5, verse 1, is some would argue that actually many, many years ago, generations and generations before, when the chapter markers and the verse markers were placed into Scripture, by the way, we always remember those numbers are not inspired Scripture. That's not the Word of God. Those are practical tools given to us just simply to help us do a corporate teaching like this that we can track along and know where we are in Scripture. But some would argue that actually chapter 5 probably shouldn't have started where chapter 5 starts. Chapter 5 maybe should start where verse 2 is in in our reference or in our text here. Many would argue that what's in verse 1 should be associated with what we looked at last week. With that being said, at the bare minimum, what we see is there's linkage here. There's a connecting thought between that humdinger of an allegory and what he's going to be teaching us this morning. Paul reminds us in verse 1, we know chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. This is that connection to the allegory. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And and the word again is important. Don't turn back. Don't go back to where you were. Stand firm. Hold your ground. We see this kind of terminology used in other passages of Scripture about standing firm, this idea of this this athletic kind of a stance. Plant your feet solidly. Have a square stance. Be ready for the opposition. Don't be knocked over. Be prepared for these things. That's the concept that's here. Stand firm what? In grace. Stand firm in what? The person Jesus Christ. Stand firm, not in what you can do as you come to the table for salvation. Stand firm in what Christ has completely, fully accomplished on your behalf. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not submit again to a works-based salvation. That's simply what he's saying. We can look at a passage that's very familiar to us, and you're going to read this with me as we know we do almost every Sunday the key or essential verse from this whole book of the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Read with me the word of God. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, this is an important concept that we're going to recognize in this morning's text. Paul's not arguing for a better way, a more gooder way, we might say. He's not arguing for a simpler process. Why are you making this so complicated? I have an easier way. That's really not what Paul's arguing for. Paul is not saying, grace is so easy. Just sit back and enjoy it. Why are you working so hard? That's not what Paul's arguing. 
what Scripture is showing us is that it is impossible. This is the argument. It is impossible to justify yourself before God on the merit of your own good works. That's the argument. It's not that there's a simpler way to get there. There is no other way to get there. That's the argument. We would use terms like this. These are mutually exclusive views on salvation. It's all or nothing when it comes to this doctrine. Grace is freedom. It's life. It's salvation. Works of the law, it's a method of earning your way of salvation. But it doesn't work. Scripture leaves no ground for a blend of these two positions. That's a clear argument from Scripture. That's that's not me contriving or pulling certain aspects out of the text. This is exactly what the text is teaching us this morning. Scripture leaves no ground for a blend, an amalgamation of these two positions. Faith plus works equals death. You hear that? Faith plus works equals death. Grace in Christ is life. It's freedom. The core of this doctrine relies, excuse me, resides on an absolute trust in Christ. The core of this doctrine resides on the absolute trust in Christ. And no trust in yourself. No trust in your self-righteousness for salvation. There's no place in grace for you to look to yourself and say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm better than them. They're worse than me. That's not the argument of Scripture. And that is the entire heartbeat of this entire letter of Galatians. We've been working through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're entering into the fifth chapter. And if you haven't noticed, it's been the same argument every week. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, no additional works required. In fact, when we add our works, it's something completely different. We're corrupting what Christ has completed on our behalf. Paul might be saying something like this, don't live under works for salvation. This path only leads to judgment. To receive grace, you're free. This path leads to life in Christ. Now, this is the entire core of our text this morning. This is the message. This is what we're seeing this morning as we look at this text. And I want you to notice as we read this, we're going to read this morning's text, verses 2 through 12 this morning, and I want you to notice there's an all-or-nothing component to what Paul's teaching here this morning. And I truly do not believe I'm imposing this upon the text. When we look at the ethereal intent, that means the author's intent, what did Paul mean when he wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of Scripture, What was the intention of this passage? It's all or nothing. That's what the passage is showing us. It's one way or the other. It's not both. And it's super clear as we look at this text this morning. So follow along as I read this morning's text for us today. Verses 2 down through verse 12. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I'm going to repeat that. Only faith working through love. Verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of God. This is powerful. We're going to talk in the end of the potency and the power and the intensity in which Paul is speaking these words. Now, I have a two-point outline for you this morning. Uh, Yes, verses 1 through 12, technically there's three paragraphs, but the body of this text that we're looking at, really there's just two paragraphs. We're going to be seeing any work intended to earn salvation cuts us off from Christ. That's verses 2 through 6. The second half of this is false teaching that promotes works needs to be cut off, verses 7 through 12. And again, as we already pointed out, there's basically two paragraphs in this section we're looking at this morning. This outline represents that. So let's jump right into the outline this morning. Number one, any works intended to earn salvation cut us off from Christ. And what seems notable to me as we recognize this section is when we look at the section in this portion of the letter is that the Galatians are persuaded. See that in verse 8? Scroll your eyes down. There's something actively taking place. And when you read the tense of what's going on in this section, in these two paragraphs, Paul is talking actively. This is something present tense that is happening. These Galatians, this group of churches in this region of Galatian, Galatia, are actively being persuaded. They are working through this conclusion. Should we be circumcised? Should we be entering into the Mosaic law in order to be justified before God? What's interesting about that is this means the conclusion has not yet happened, or at least for many of them it has not taken place. Look at verse 2. The tense of this seems to point us to this idea. If you accept uh, circumcision, what, what is he saying? He's not saying since you have or because you did. If you do, if this happens, if you do this, he's pointing out to them the fact that you are actively being persuaded you need Stand your ground. Hold firm. Do not relent. Don't go back to that teaching. So at this point in the letter, we know well that these Gentiles are being told that a man must undergo this physical ritual, this procedure required under the law to become a Jew uh, before they can fully have the salvation, the complete salvation that's given to them in Christ. That's what the Judaizers seem to be bringing to them. It seems to be this nuanced idea that it's not just a work of the law, but for these Gentiles to receive full salvation, they need to become Jews. That seems to be the motivation of what's going on there. And this procedure, this circumcision, we know is the outward sign of the covenant which was originally established with Abraham, and we see it continued on throughout the law of Moses. In essence, they're being told one must become a Jew before they can become a Christian. Or in Old Testament language, one must become a proselyte. Someone must be a Gentile who becomes a Jew in order to receive the full benefits of salvation under Christ. Another theological terms that you guys like to tease me about, excuse me, Paul is essentially saying, that's hogwash, right? You love it when I say that, so anyway. This false teaching is being propagated by a group from Jerusalem. There's a delegation, there's a group from Jerusalem known as the Judaizers. In Acts chapter 15, we've looked at this passage in the past, we're going to allude to it in just a minute here. It points us back to exactly who this group is. It's in Acts chapter 15 that we see the Jerusalem council formulated, and historically they've come together to come to a conclusion on this precise, exact detail. Is it necessary for the Gentiles to do this in order to be saved? So this council is formed. It's composed of the apostles. It's composed of the Jerusalem elders, pastors, teachers, shepherds. We talked about that a minute ago. There were also very influential and significant individuals in the churches throughout the region, but particularly Jerusalem, that were all called together to come to this conclusion. 
as we have been under the teaching of Christ himself, as God the Holy Spirit is working, particularly through the, uh, the apostles in this case, but through all of us, we need to come to a conclusion. Is it necessary regarding these Gentiles that they become Jews, that they go through this proselyte process of going to the Old Testament law in order that they can be full benefactors of the grace that's available in Christ Jesus? This council established to sort out this precise detail of circumcision. And at this council meeting, there were a particular group of Jews that came seeking to commandeer, it appears, to take over this council and to direct it in a wrong direction. We see that in Acts 15, verse 1. Acts 15, verse 1 says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's the problem. Now what's interesting is if we continue to read through that whole section of Acts 15, we see the process, we see the conclusions, the discussion that took place. But then something else takes place just a few verses later in verse 5. And look at what takes place from these Pharisees. But some believers... That's interesting. These are Pharisees who have believed that Jesus Christ is the Savior. This is interesting. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Hmm. Take this back to Acts, or excuse me, to Galatians 5. You can't have them both. It's one or the other. And this is to a T what this group of the Pharisees, we're now going to identify them as Judaizers. This is the doctrine they're teaching. They're saying there is a religious ceremony under the Old Testament law, particularly circumcision, that is necessary for these Gentiles. So on the basis of this account and the exact details of what happens in Galatia, or excuse me, in Galatia, we can surmise that the Judaizers are more than likely this exact group of guys that are here at the Jerusalem Council who are identified as believers belonging to the party of the Pharisees. If it's not these exact men, it's a delegation sent from them. Their party sent out from them. And what's really interesting about this is we look and we read this letter of Galatians, we recognize Paul seems to be taking this really personally. He talks about this very passionately, as if he knows who these Judaizers are, I want to assert to you, it's my opinion, I think he knows exactly who they are. I think he knows to a T who these individuals are. And that this very group of individuals who were in Jerusalem have sent forth this delegation from themselves or another group of people to teach this doctrine of circumcision. The council came to the right conclusion. I need to say that more emphatically. The council came to the right conclusion. But it doesn't change the fact that these Judaizers, this delegation of the Pharisees, they held their line. They continued to hold to their false doctrine that it's necessary for Gentiles to become as a Jew in order to be saved. And apparently what's taken place is these men from Acts 15 have now sent these false teachers to Galatia and they're influencing them. They're teaching them. They're persuading them that in spite of the doctrine that they've been given, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but wait, there's more. There's works you must do. And this is Paul's response. This group will become our focus in verses 7 through 12 in the second point in just a minute. So Paul's charged to the Galatians, who are actively being persuaded by these false teachers. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Don't turn back to those things. You hold your ground. Do not be persuaded. Do not go that direction. Again, notice the tense in verse 2. Because to embrace your good works for salvation in addition to Christ is no advantage to you at all. It's not that there's a simpler way. There is no other way. To illustrate it this way, the Galatians are tempted to seek religion with the, with the idea that if a little bit's good, 
more is better. Have you heard that expression before? Uh, I've heard people talk about when they make sweet tea, good old-fashioned southern sweet tea. When you add the sugar in, when you pour the sugar in, if a little bit's good, more is better. Get in the picture? Uh, Think about it this way. You can hear my voice, the fact that I've been sick this week. When you're taking medications to try and compensate for the symptoms and the things that are going on, if a little bit's good, don't go too far and say more is better by taking too much medication, right? When I'm out working in my shop and I'm working on a vehicle, I'm working on something in the shop, and something's not working the way that it should, I can't get a part to come apart, I have the option of grabbing a hammer that will influence or persuade the situation Or I can grab a hammer that's too big. And here's the issue. The idea is if a little bit's good, more is better. But that's a failed thought process. Because sometimes too much is bad. And this is what's happening here. They're saying salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. But it isn't going to hurt to put a little more on top. I can pad it. I can insulate this. I can make sure that I'm adding everything necessary. I can hedge my bet. I can protect myself. I can make sure I've got everything I need. I can know for sure I've got this covered in all directions. And Brian's paraphrase of Paul, hogwash. Don't do that. On the surface, this principle sounds good, but it fails. It falls apart. Because when it comes to the work of the law for salvation and grace, this equation doesn't work. They're mutually exclusive. Grace doesn't get better when we add our own good works to it. Our works, in addition to grace, it spoils the whole lot. So therefore, Paul points out, therefore, Paul points out, if you're going to dip your toes into the waters of the law, To earn your salvation, you'd better just dive in all the way. That's what he's going to say here. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you're going to go that far, just go in all the way. Just dive into the pool. Get yourself all the way in there. But what we recognize is what Paul's showing them, and we can base this on the foundation of what he's probably already taught them as he's been a part of the missionary journey to them, is that doesn't work either, does it? Because we can look at passages like James, and James chapter 2, verse 10, very plainly shows us this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see what Paul's pressing them toward is? The fallacy of saying that, okay, that if you're going to follow the law, then jump all the way in. But there's a problem. None of us are capable of keeping the whole law. Every one of us are going to fail when it comes to the law. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, this is what we say. Now we, this is what it says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If anyone enters in and plunges into that pool and says, therefore, I'll just earn my way to salvation, I'll take grace, I'll take what Christ has done, but I'm just going to jump in and make sure I have everything hedged. I'm going to make sure that a little bit more, if a little bit's good, more's better. I'm going to make sure I do that. Paul says, that's a failed philosophy. You're just going to find yourself guilty. The point is this, if you're going to abandon grace and place yourself under the law, you're in big trouble. This is an impossible standard. If you fail in one iota of the law, you're guilty, you're condemned by all of it. Jesus made this clear. Jesus made this clear as he confronted those who were trying to earn their way to salvation and asking them, how have you kept the law? Have you done these things? And what he shows them is that every one of us are guilty. Everyone is condemned by the works of the law. Not just by what we do, but by our thoughts, by our heart, by the lust, by the passions that are within us. It's not enough just to simply say, I didn't do that. Talk to me about the intentions of your heart. Even our heart makes us guilty before God. Now, this is an important qualification because all of this is about circumcision. 50% of the room is saying this doesn't apply to me. 
The other half of the room says, this applies to me. Or maybe there's another delegation of the room that's sitting here going, uh, we have sons. We did or didn't do this, or we will, we should, we shouldn't we? Is this saying that this is, uh, this is something that shouldn't be taking place in Christian homes? It's not at all what Paul is saying. It's not at all what the Word is saying. If you've pursued this procedure for your sons, this does not mean that you've jeopardized their eternal life with Christ. You can laugh at that a little bit. Lighten up, guys. You can light it, laugh at that a little bit. Unless you're teaching your sons that that procedure is what has earned them eternal life. Hmm. We can make an equation to other religious practices that parents and families practice all the time, and they can say, we know that you're saved because this took place. That's the fallacy of the teaching. Are you with me? Now, let's just take this a half an inch further to think about this idea of circumcision. Paul doesn't forbid the practice of circumcision. Uh, This is a declaration that there's nothing we can do to add to the work of Christ that completes, that finishes, that improves upon grace. However, just think about this because this is going to come up at the end of chapter, or the end of this section, I think it's in verse 11, that Paul himself in Acts 16 had Timothy, his young apprentice or young disciple in ministry, right after the Jerusalem council, by the way, he had Timothy as an adult circumcised. What? Now, again, what we're going to see take place at the end in Galatians chapter 5 is Paul saying, that doesn't undermine this teaching in any way. What he did was a practical decision that as he was going from community to community, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, beginning where? In the synagogues. Without this outward sign of the covenant, Timothy, in a sense, would have been forbidden to go into the synagogue to preach. And at the very least, if he was allowed to preach, he would have been rejected based on the surface level of these matters. So he did this as a matter of testimony and the ability to have an open door to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In no way was Paul saying in Timothy's case or any other individual's case that that is what's earning him salvation. That wasn't the motivation. There are lots of things that we can do for the sake of other people, things that we can do that are works unto Christ that aren't earning us salvation. They're just the right thing to do as we follow after Christ. That's what's happened there. So obviously this this instruction related to grace and works does not abolish works of obedience. This is an important qualification. This is something that frequently happens with a passage like this. What will happen is people will say, since I'm under grace, I can just live however I want. I can just do whatever I want. That's not what Paul's teaching here at all. There are all kinds of failed teachings that support the idea that, that, that there's no works at all that, that are necessary for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, if we're banking on those works to save us, We have a problem. What's the other side of it? As a follower of Jesus Christ, as I am a new creation in him, as I am regenerate, born again, what is to flow out of this life in Christ? Good works. We can see that in passages like Romans 6. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the rhetorical question. The question is, well, since, all we have, since we have grace, and there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, we can just live and do whatever we want to do. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. It's all covered under grace. That doesn't work. Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? So Paul's saying, he's not in any way saying that we should just not worry about what we do. We should live in obedience. We should follow after Christ. We should be turning away from sin. But don't you for a minute think that those actions are what are saving you or have saved you. This is a fruit. This is an outcome. This is the reality of who we are in Christ. By the way, in the Hebrew, when we see the word by no means, it's very similar to the word that we speak hogwash today. That's a joke. Don't write that down. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, 
Because we love him, this is who we are in Christ, we obey him. Verse 3 from 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 2, it says this, By this we know that we have come to know him. This is evidence of who we are in Christ. If we keep his commandments, important qualification. These are not works unto salvation. Keeping his commandments are the fruit of salvation. Do you hear the difference? There's a radical difference in this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. By the way, what is that truth? That's salvation. You're not a follower of Christ. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Not works-based salvation. For those who are truly saved in Christ, works will be the evidence of the new life of regeneration in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In James chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Just a few verses later in verse 26 of the same passage. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this is the important qualification. Paul is not saying that we disregard the way we follow after Christ, that we disregard obedience, that we just do whatever we want. He is clearly showing us that in Christ we walk in obedience. But don't for a second think that because I did this, because of the good things that I did, because of the way that I was charitable, because of the way I treated this person, that's what's getting me to heaven. That's garbage, guys. That's exactly what Paul's saying. It doesn't work this way. Anything we do, any works, any ceremony, any religious practice that you do because you believe this action will earn you salvation, look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ. I'm only going to do a high-level observation of this, and those of you that are adults can get the connection. He talks about being severed. He talks about being cut off. And then he talks about being emasculated. There's a connection there. That's all I'm going to say. Cut off. You have cut yourself off from grace. You are now under the impossible standard of earning your way by the law. You are hopeless. You are impossible. You are in an impossible situation. Verse 4 again, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. They are incongruous. Works of the law for salvation and grace do not work together. And Paul's point here is the exclusivity of the gospel. You can write that word down. The exclusivity of the gospel. Verse 2 again, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's all or nothing. Mutually exclusive. You cannot have both ways. When we look at a passage like John chapter 14, verse 6, which again is familiar to us, we don't often think of it in light of this kind of passage that we see here in Galatians 5. But it absolutely corresponds to it. Jesus said, I am the singular way and the singular truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when we think about the doctrine of the exclusivity, the singular path of salvation through Christ and Christ alone, we will often look at it and say, this is referring to other methods of salvation. This might be referring to other religious systems that people would follow after seeking to earn eternity or salvation. We might apply it to things like Eastern religion, to Islam, to secular humanism, to the God of Mormonism, or to the Jehovah's Witness. We might apply it in that kind of way, which is appropriate. But the same principle applies to the false teaching that has come from the Judaizers to the Galatians. Because anything that we do that even says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, 
plus works, it destroys the exclusivity of the gospel. Do you hear that? Do you get that principle? What Paul makes clear here is this. In the exclusivity of the gospel, it's salvation by grace, sola, alone, through faith, sola, nothing else, alone, in Christ, alone. The glorious message excludes any works that we can bring to the table. And if we feel that our works brought to the table of alone in Christ, then we have corrupted the gospel. It's a different gospel. It's in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that it says this, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now go to verse 5. Look at verse 5 from Galatians chapter 5. The Galatians were seeking their own righteousness through works of the law. We might impose upon this the idea of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will not get you grace. It doesn't add to grace. It destroys grace. So Paul points them to the already but not yet realities of Christ Jesus. This is really cool. He points them toward eternity. He talks about the righteousness that they are incapable of earning for themselves today, and he points them to the fact that there's a day coming when we will have righteousness, but it's not our own. Paul points them to the already but not yet realities of Christ's righteousness that has been accredited to all who believe. For through the Spirit, this is what it says in verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's pointing to the fact that there is a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that's been accredited to us. We see this in Romans chapter 4 when it talks about Abraham, pointing all the way back to this Old Testament saint, one who was marked as righteous. But notice how. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Do you hear that? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. By the way, you could insert there the word faith. Because of Abraham's faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the, it, now the righteousness Abraham possess, possessed, it wasn't his own. If it was, he had something to talk about. But God didn't care. God didn't look down at Abraham and say, now that's a good guy. I really appreciate Abraham. Man, he's trying hard. That's not what this passage is teaching in any way at all. He's not talking about Abraham and looking down to Abraham and saying, he's a good dude, and man, is he better than the guy that he lives next door to. Wow! Does he look good compared to the people he's surrounded with? That's not what it's saying. No. God himself accredited his own righteousness, God's righteousness upon Abraham because Abraham had faith and believed in God. This is so important. This is what's referred to throughout Scripture. We see this coming out of Martin Luther, but we see this throughout all of Scripture, this idea of alien righteousness, a righteousness not of our own. I can't have righteousness before God that's of my own because when I do, it's self-righteousness. And God says, that's filthy rags. That's garbage before me. I don't want your righteousness. I want the only righteousness. I want the righteousness of my own son, Christ Jesus. That's what I call for, a foreign righteousness. So this is important. If I don't assume anything, when I share with a group of this size and this number of people, even people who would say I'm a member of the church, I don't assume. If you have genuinely placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only, sola, solitary means of salvation, the alien, the foreign righteousness of Christ has been accredited to your account. When God the Father looks upon you, to God be the glory, he doesn't see your righteousness. He doesn't see what I've done. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, which has been placed upon me. 
This is important because it fits back to what we're seeing here in verse 5. Some of you are going to sit there and you're going to say, but wait, I'm not righteous. I keep screwing up. I still sin. I'm still a wretched sinner that I just can't do the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. I keep falling on my face when it comes to sin. So you might be sitting there and thinking, do you know what I did this weekend? Do you know the way I talk to that person? Do you know the way that I think about them? Do you know the lusts that are in my heart? Do you know what I struggle with in sin? If you're in Christ Jesus, it's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. So some of us might be crying out, will I ever be set free from this sinful flesh? And Paul's answer in verse 5 is, you betcha, eh? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We have the already but not yet hope of righteousness. We have the hope of the new body that one day will be set free and truly be made, no, be made new. Without sin, we will truly be righteous. Here's an application question for your small groups this afternoon, this evening, if you've not met already this weekend. Do you long for that day when you will truly be made righteous? I want you to talk about that as a group, what that looks like. Do you long for the day that you will be made righteous? Too often when we think about eternity, when we think about heaven, we think of streets of gold. We think about these new bodies that will be set free from sin and will no longer hurt, no longer get sick. There's no longer going to be struggles with health or the difficulties of this world. To God be the glory, that will be true. I want you to talk about what it will be like to be truly, practically, in reality, be righteous before Christ. Talk about that tonight. And then I want you to do one other thing, and I don't have this in my slides, but I want you to write this down. Write down Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And as you think about what it means to be righteous and what that will happen, that day will come if you, if you are in Christ, I want you to look and talk about who will be the center of eternity, what it will mean to stand before him in righteousness. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Now look at verse 6. We're going to bring this full circle and we're really coming around fast here, I promise. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, do you hear the qualification there? Only faith working through love. Only what Christ has accomplished, and it is only about our trust and faith in Him. It is not our works, whether we're talking about circumcision or any other religious practice. It is only what Christ has done. Point number two false teaching that, pr- that promotes works needs to be cut off. These are not about works of obedience, these are not works that we do because we love Him. We've already talked about this. These are works that, that we believe are earning us salvation. These need to be cut off. If there's anything that you're doing that you in your own mind, even subconscious, are saying, there, that got it for me. There, I got far enough. There, I'm good enough now. Cut it off. Paul begins, with this, par- begins this paragraph with a statement and then a rhetorical question. Verse 7. You were running well. There's that race we talked to the kids about a minute ago. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I think another way to look at that is this. You were running that race. Who tripped you up? What caused you to stumble? Why did you fall on your face mid-race? You were doing so well. And we know that very plainly, this is, a, this is a metaphor that Paul uses all throughout Scripture, talking about running the race, competing in such a way. He talks about this in his last words to Timothy. Is he, he's prepared to die, and he knows that he has run the race. And this is exactly what he says in verse 7 that's behind me. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And here's what's interesting when we see this. Notice the connection to righteousness that we just talked about. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's longing for the already but not yet. 
I'm looking for that day of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also, here's all of us, all who have loved his appearing. So verse 7, you were running well, who tripped you up? Who caused you to fall? And the answer to this question, we already saw this from Acts 15, is the Judaizers. As these ones who feel that they're, who, who are holding to this, that they have persuaded them in verse 8 to say, there's something you have to do in addition to what Christ has done. There's more that has to be done. What does he say in verse 9? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We get that analogy. Here's another common metaphor in Scripture. This goes back to the Hebrew days when they would recognize that they would purge all of the leaven, all of the yeast from their home, because symbolically that leaven in the day of Passover was representative of sin. So they were to cast all of this out of their home. And, and that's, the, that's the picture that we have here. It's not saying that yeast or leaven is sin. That's not what it's saying. But what we recognize when we make a loaf of bread, we take that flour, we take the oil, take a little bit of water and that salt, and then we take just a tiny bit of leaven. And it works its way into the whole loaf and it does its job. But what we recognize at that moment is even though it's just a pinch, even though it's just a tiny bit, that bit of yeast permeates, penetrates everything. Take the picture of sin in this. That sin has corrupted all of the loaf. It's messed it all up. And that's the point of what Paul's saying here. This little bit of persuasion from these Judaizers has taken the beautiful, glorious message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus a little works, and it's ruined it all. It's mutually exclusive. We can't mix these two together. It's all or nothing. Verse 10 I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice this balance between Paul's responsibility and his trust in the sovereignty of God. He believes that if God truly has begun this work in them, this regeneration has taken place, God's going to see it through. But that doesn't cause Paul to put his hands in his pockets and say, let go, let God. God's just going to take care of this. Look at the passion that Paul has. Many would argue argue that the book of Galatians is Paul's most passionate letter of all of his epistles. And he is passionately arguing for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as opposed to sitting down and saying, God will sort it out. That doesn't change his trust in God. That's exactly what he was saying. He's saying that he believes God's going to sort this out, But I'm faithfully going to teach this message. I'm going to faithfully stand for this gospel. And then in verse 11, he talks about these brothers who say that he's still preaching circumcision. We don't know to a T what's going on here, but this is probably in allusion to Paul's statement or action regarding Timothy that we saw in Acts 16. And he's probably making a statement that both the Galatians and the Judaizers understand. He's saying, They're probably saying something like, he's hypocritical. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And he's like saying, oh boy, there he goes again. Paul just said hogwash. He's saying, that's not true. He's saying, that's that's not the reality at all. That's not what I'm teaching you. But then Paul concludes with an extremely startling word picture. I, I wrestled this week with how do I communicate this? Some of you are getting immediately with how illicit this reaction is. You recognize what Paul's talking about here. You're seeing how significant it is of what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying to a group of people who are saying, you should circumcise, take a portion off. Saying to you, just take it all off. I don't have to say it. Just do it. But here's the point. Think about how shocking this is. Think about how powerful of a statement that is. This isn't Paul just speaking impulsively. This is the word of God, guys. And the intention behind it, as I wrestle with knowing how to say this to a mixed audience with children and people from all different backgrounds, I'm being really careful about how I say this. 
I'm being far more cautious than Paul was. The intention was shock and awe. The intention is that as these words would have been publicly read in the churches of Galatia, there would have been people in the pews who were saying, <gasps> did Paul just say what I think he said? Yeah, he just said what he said. That's exactly what he said. I wish they'd just cut it all off. It's in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. I want you to notice how severe this is. We saw this weeks ago. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned to hell. That's accursed. It was last week in chapter 4, verse 30, that we saw in that allegory this picture where Paul says to them, cast them out. What's he talking about? The doctrine of works plus grace. Today, when it comes to these false teachers, he said they should just emasculate themselves. I think what I'm recognizing in this is this is pretty important doctrine. This isn't passive stuff. This isn't second-tier stuff. Paul's call to the Galatians, Paul's call to us today is if there is anything we're doing, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's our thought process or religious practices, anything that we're doing that we think is adding to what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf to earn us salvation, cut it off. Because this is not the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is exclusive. It is the only way No man comes to the Father but by me. It is not for us to add any of our works to what Christ has completed. 